Zechariah chapter 9. We looked at verses 9 through 11 last week, and this week I want us to actually expand our study. So go with me, get Zechariah chapter 9 and get Daniel chapter 9. Zechariah 9 and Daniel 9. And uh, is there anyone, let's have the ushers come forward with the handouts. Is there anyone who did not get a handout? You're definitely going to want it this morning. Is there anyone, let me get one from you so I know which blanks to fill in. All right, so if you did not get a handout, raise your hand as the ushers come by. You're definitely going to want this. I've really enjoyed this study. And so what I'm going to do tonight is we're going to do kind of a quick, um, at least a bit, a famous last words, right? We're going to try and make it quick, uh, a study of the, how specific this prophecy is. I'm going to give you some details. And then tonight in the evening service, what we're going to do is I'm going to uh, go through how we get these numbers and how all of this comes together. So we're going to fill in a lot of blanks tonight. I don't mean the blanks on your sheet, but a lot of blanks in the teaching tonight uh, where we'll have a little bit more time to specifically look at Scripture and look at some things that have gone on in history. But this morning, let's look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. The Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly in riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Lord, help us to see just how powerful your word is. Lord, as we look at the power of prophecy today, Lord, I hope we understand that what the Bible says about this event, and as true as it is, and as it proved to be, that everything else you say about us is as true. So, Father, help us to see the significance of this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, how many of you know that there are people who do not believe the Bible is a supernatural book? How many of you know that that's true? So now, here's what I want us to do. So you've got Daniel 9, you've got Zechariah 9. Find a way to keep those places and go to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. We've gone to this passage many times. If God was going to write a book, what kind of book would it be? And there are many reasons to believe that the Bible is true. We use that MAPS acronym, Manuscript Evidence, Archaeological Discoveries, Prophecies Fulfilled, uh, and the Law of Statistical Probability. All of that points to the Bible being historically accurate and true. My favorite defense of the Scriptures in its accuracy is how accurately it describes the human condition. There, there's not another book that better describes the human condition. And, you know, we do have July 4th coming up, and I understand that we declared independence on July 4th, 1776. And in the Declaration of Independence and then in our Constitution, what, the, what our founders understood was that man is sinful and that ultimate power corrupts ultimately. And because they know that the best of men are men at best, and those were all statements that they made, 
then what they understood was that government of, by, and for the people, and that's uh, Abraham Lincoln, right, Gettysburg Address. But that kind of government of, by, and for the people, if it is of, by, and for the people, then it must be limited because people are bad. Our founders understood that. People are not innately good. They are innately evil. That's why we have to have laws. That's why we have to have a balance of powers. We have a legislative branch, a judicial branch, and an executive branch, and they're co-equal branches of government, and that's our checks and balances to make sure that one branch doesn't get so much power that it becomes despotic because all men with ultimate power will ultimately become despotic. Why did they understand that? Because they understood Scripture. They didn't get that from the French Enlightenment. The French Revolution and the Enlightenment, that's all about the goodness of man and the light that's in every man. That's not the foundation of our system of government. The Bible is. And so the Bible, because it's such an amazing predictor of the human condition and describer of the human condition, that's my favorite evidence for the Bible being true. But if God was going to write a book, what kind of book would it be? This is the text that answers that question. Look at Isaiah chapter 46 and look at verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So declaring the end from the beginning. It's interesting. God had ordained that Jesus Christ would die on the cross for our sins. And then he said, let there be light. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, nothing surprises God. I love that statement. Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He knows it all. And because he knows it all and he is outside of time, he is able to predict what is going to happen. So now, go back with me to Daniel chapter 9. And Zechariah chapter 9. All right, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, what is the next two words? Thy king cometh unto thee. Tonight we're going to look at how Jesus Christ fulfilled that. But go back to Daniel chapter 9, and I want you to see something. And as we do that, look up here at the screen. I want to go through a quick review of where we've been. So prophecy, a definition of prophecy is God writing history before it happens. When God predicts something, when God writes prophecy, you might as well write it as history, as if it had already happened. That's how sure it is. Prophecy is God writing history before it happens. And we've just read Isaiah 46, 9. The book of Zechariah is divided into three sections. Chapters 1 through 6 have 8 to 10 visions given to the prophet all in just one night. Chapters 7 and 8 are general instructions to God's people. And then chapters 9 through 14 are specific prophecies concerning Christ's first and second comings. Now, don't unplug here. It's important that you understand where we are, and we're going to dive into some specifics in a second. 
Chapters 9 through 11 deal primarily with Christ's first coming. Now, of course, we've already seen that there are some things about his second coming. But the primary emphasis of chapters 9 through 11 is the first coming of Jesus Christ. Chapters 12 through 14 deal primarily with Christ's second coming and rule on the earth. We're going to be studying Antichrist. We're going to be studying the kingdom and the tribulation. All of that is in Revelation chapters 12 through 14. It's amazing the truth that is in there. All of it is amazing, and these chapters cover the same time periods as the first six chapters. So the visions tell us that God's not done with his people and what he's going to do, and then there are specific detailed prophecies that reiterate those points. The book covers the time from Zechariah's time to the establishment of the kingdom in Israel. Now remember when Jesus Christ, right before he ascended into heaven, his disciples said to him, will you now, will you restore again the kingdom to Israel? He wasn't ready to do that. Now, there's an important principle. It's the principle of dual fulfillment, and that was the whole last week. You need to get last week to understand the morning and evening service. If you haven't heard it, go online or get the CDs. You need to understand this principle of dual fulfillment. Now, just just a recap of the principle of dual fulfillment. That is that God is able, in a supernatural way, to speak to an audience and have that information applied to his immediate audience. And to have a future fulfillment of that event. So it can be meaningful to the immediate hearers while prophesying something that will happen at a future event. And that future event can be divided into two parts, a partial fulfillment and a complete fulfillment. And the context will always tell you what that is. All right, that's the principle of dual fulfillment. We also have the principle of partial fulfillment. Zechariah 9.9, this is one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible, and we're going to demonstrate that for you this morning. I wish, I wish that I had the ability to tell you all how significant this is. Now, how many of you believe the Bible is a special book? How many of you, you really believe that? I hope that you leave here today stunned at how amazing the Bible really is. Because I'm going to show you some things that any atheist in the world, any honest atheist in the world, would have to bow before the scriptures and say, I was wrong. Because we're going to demonstrate who God is this morning in his supernatural prophecy in a way that ought to be stunning to you. All right? So let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And on the the screen, I have verse 24, but I want to start in verse 2, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2. In the first year of his reign, and that's that's Darius or Darius, so verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books, look at what it says. Would you read this out loud to me, with me, just this next few words, the number of of the years. Do y'all see that? Let's read that again. The number of the years. What Daniel understood by reading the prophet Jeremiah was that the captivity was almost over. That that when God gives numbers, he means it. And because Daniel believed God's word and did his math, you guys were thinking, I didn't know there was going to be math on the test, right? Is that what, that's what you're thinking today? Because he did his math, he understood that the captivity was almost over. So what did he begin? What did he do? 
Verse 2 again, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years, whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So what did he do? And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. So when Daniel understood that God was going to do something, what did he begin doing? He began praying for God to do that. How many of you want God to answer your prayer? Seriously, you want God to answer your prayer? Then pray for what he has promised to do. That's a great way to get your prayer answered. And what does that do? It aligns your will with God's purposes. It aligns your expectations with God's purposes. There are a lot of people get, that get frustrated in Christianity because they're expecting God to do something that he never promised to do. That's exactly what happens, all right? So now, let's jump forward to... So Daniel prays, he asks God for some things, and God answers his prayer. Look with me at verse 21. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer... Even the man Gabriel, do you see it says the man Gabriel? Don't ever miss this. Every time an angel appears, he looks like a man. They're not women with wings. Every time an angel appears, he looks like a man. So if you have one of those pretty concrete women angels in your yard, what you have is a demon in your yard, or at least the image of one, okay? I won't say anything about who's inside. Just, okay. So this man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. And, and hold on. Don't just believe me. Check it out. Read the Bible. It's amazing how often popular Christianity is just the opposite of what the Bible says. All right. Don't believe anything I say. Check it out. Read the Bible. Check it out. Check me out on it. Okay. The man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. Now, the evening oblation, that's a special time of prayer and service in the temple. So it's interesting, the temple, was, the temple has been destroyed, but Daniel is still worshiping. All right? Verse 22. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. It's interesting. There are two people in the Bible other than Jesus that are called beloved, Daniel and John. And God gave Daniel the apocalypse of the Old Testament, and God gave John, the beloved disciple, the apocalypse of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. It's an interesting thing. The people that are beloved of God, God gave them certain information. Abraham's called the friend of God. Moses is called the friend of God. And God gave each of them amazing information. If you want God to reveal the scriptures to you, be his friend. Love him. Be faithful and loyal to him. But there are two specific people in the scriptures, Daniel and John, that are called beloved. And after he calls them beloved, he gives them amazing information about the future. All right? So now, look at verse 23. Uh, uh, let, let's look at verse 24. This is the message that Gabriel, the angel of God, gives to Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined upon who? 
Everyone, who is it? And upon what? To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for the weak, and in the midst of the weak he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, a lot of unusual language in that, that passage. So what I want to do is I want to break down the passage just in a cursory way so we can see what's going on. But what you need to understand is that this is the most significant prophetic passage in the entire Bible. These four verses. It's the most significant prophetic passage in the entire Bible. So in verse 24, this is the time frame of the prophecy, and that time frame is 70 weeks. Do you see that in verse 24? 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Now remember, this isn't for the church. It's for Israel. You'll see that? The church is not in here. The church is not in this prophecy. Very important. Then in verse 25, it details, so there are 70 weeks... And then in verse 25, if you look at verse 25 again, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So threescore, a score is 20. Threescore is 60. Y'all see that? So threescore and two is how many? Is that right? How many is it? 62. But look at what it says at the beginning of the verse. Know therefore and understand. In the middle of the verse, prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So if you take 62 and seven and add them together, what do you get? 69. 69 weeks. Now, there's a, there's a very, very significant reason why God says seven and then 62. I just don't know what it is. I don't have any idea, and I've not had any good commentator tell me why he says seven weeks and then 62. It's very important, but I don't know what it is. But we do know that 62 and 7 are 69. So verse 25 details 69 weeks of years. Now, verse 26 is interesting. This deals with the interval between the 69th and the 70th weeks of years. Now, verse 26 doesn't just come between verses 25 and 27. It deals with an interval, and we're going to talk about that another time. Verse 27, look at verse 27 with me. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So keep your place in Daniel 9. Keep Daniel 9. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24.
Jesus is going to quote this passage and give us some explanation about what's happening. Matthew chapter 24. So if you look at um, verse 3, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? All right, so that's the question. Jesus begins answering the question. It's interesting when you look at verse 6, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall get rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And so it's interesting. All my life I've heard about when there's an earthquake, that means the Lord's coming is closer. And when you hear about all these things, what Jesus is saying is that all that is going to lead up to it. You're going to have that. That's the beginning of the sorrows. But then he gives some very specific information. Look at what it says in verse 13, but he, or verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Verse 15, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let him, let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. So what Jesus is saying is this abomination of desolation that takes place halfway through this week that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. You see that happen? You people in Israel, run because the great tribulation is about to happen. So Jesus refers back to this Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. He refers back to that, or Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26 and 27. and says, when you see this happen, you need to know that the end is very, very near. And we know that the end is actually three and a half years from there. All right? So Jesus Christ refers back to this Daniel chapter 9 and this 70 weeks, or the 70, uh, 70th week. So let me just, uh, actually, we'll just do it this way. Daniel chapter 9 is a prophecy for Israel and not the church. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, let's go back there. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, God outlines six future events, and they are to finish the transgressions. Now, how many of you think that people are finished sinning? So this is yet future. To make an end of sins. Are people still sinning? And then to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, Jesus did that for believers, right? We're reconciled to him, but Israel has not been reconciled. Remember, this is for Israel. That's yet future. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Do we have everlasting righteousness in the world right now? No. That's when Jesus Christ comes back. He's just and he's righteous. All right. Then to seal up the vision. 
Man, we're not done hearing from God yet, but we will be done with the vision. And then to anoint the most highly, the most holy. Don't forget to anoint the most holy. Don't forget that the word Messiah means anointed one. And when Jesus Christ is accepted as Messiah, when he returns, that's the fulfillment of this prophecy. So all of this, and remember, he's not our Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's our Savior. He's our Lord and Savior. We're not Jews. We're not the Jewish nation. He's the Jewish Messiah, and that's coming. All right? None of these have been completed. Now, I had to lay this foundation. Are you all with me right now? Is anybody too tired to go on? I can't go on. I can't do it. All right, let's, okay, let's, let's dive into this. So Daniel 9.25, the first 69 weeks, it begins, look, at, look with me at the passage. It begins with the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. So we need to track that down and try and figure out where that is. Look at verse 25, Daniel 9.25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So there's some specific information that we can track down. There are four kingly decrees about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So we have to determine if we're going to understand the fulfillment of this prophecy, which, how do we choose? How do we know which one? Well, three of these deal with the rebuilding of the temple. That's not what verse 25 says. It says the wall, the street, and the wall. Do you see that? To restore and build Jerusalem, restore and build Jerusalem. Later in the verse, the street shall be built again, the wall. All right, this is not the temple. This is the rebuilding of the city. Only one of these kingly decrees deals with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Only one gives permission to rebuild the city. Remember, when Ezra went back, when they began building, the, all they did was they built the altar. They started building the temple. And then after about two years, they stopped because of the opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah, the Samaritans that were attacking them. The book of Zechariah, Haggai and Zechariah are both written to get the people to finish the temple. That's the point of those books. The decree, the reason they couldn't finish the temple was because they didn't have the protection of the walls. So when was the decree given to rebuild the city and to rebuild the walls? That's the important one. It's Artaxerxes, Longimanus, and that's 445 B.C. Go to the book of Nehemiah, the shortest man in the Bible, Nehemiah. <laughs> Is that terrible? That might be worse than the grease joke from last week. All right. Nehemiah chapter 2. So Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. That meant he was his wine taster. He was the one who would taste the food. And if Nehemiah died, then the king probably wouldn't eat the food. So he was very close and had to be very trusted. Well, one day, the king looks at Nehemiah, and Nehemiah doesn't look well. How many of you think that might concern the king? So he inquires after Nehemiah. And look at Nehemiah chapter 2, and look at verse 4. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. 
It's interesting. Nehemiah, or the king asked Nehemiah what he wants, and and Nehemiah prays to God. Isn't that good? Then look at what he says in verse 5. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, look at, unto the what? City of my father's sepulchers, that I may, what are those next two words? Build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come unto, into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the, look at that, the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Right there, at that point where the king granted that, that's where the countdown begins. That's where the clock begins ticking. You see that? That's the decree. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be. And now we have a time frame. So Artaxerxes gives them the number. Oh, in in verses 17 and 18, he talks about building the wall and the streets. So that is the actual point where that's verses 17 and 18 of Nehemiah chapter two. That's the point where it begins. So, the 70 weeks of Daniel, don't miss this, and now you're going to want to get your hand out. This is where you're going to start needing your hand out. And we're going to start here on the chart side, where it says Daniel's 70 weeks. Now, there are two things that you need to understand. Number one, this uh, graph is not to scale. All right, that's number one. Number two... I have Daniel's 70 weeks, but we're really dealing with Daniel's 69 weeks. All right, maybe at another another time we'll complete the chart. But this is the 69 weeks that are prophesied in Daniel's 70 weeks. So if you look at the top left of your your handout, I'm sorry, the, the, the bottom left of your handout, the decree of Artaxerxes, the decree of Artaxerxes is the command, it's a mathematical prophecy, It's a command to rebuild Jerusalem. All right, so top left, the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Bottom left, it's the decree of Artaxerxes. All right, so don't forget mathematical prophecy of what is going to happen. And so what the text says, so if you look at verse 25 again, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince... Messiah the Prince, when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and notice that that Prince is capitalized in your Bible. There's another Prince later on that's not capitalized. Who do you think that is? Antichrist. All right, so the earlier Prince in the text is Jesus Christ, Messiah the Prince. So the command to build Jerusalem and Messiah the Prince. Do you see that on your handout? Messiah the Prince. All right, some some important notes. 
Jewish and Babylonian calendars didn't have 365 days. Tonight, I'm going to tell you why all that changed. Some really fun stuff tonight. And seriously, really fun on how all of this changed. Has to do with the realignment of the planets and some pretty cool, amazing things. So the, the Jewish and Babylonian calendars were 360 days. The Jewish calendar is still 360 days, but they add five days every, I think, seven years. They have to add five days. It's, it's a, every so many years. It's an interesting thing, the way it all works, the math. But the, the Babylonian and Jewish calendars, which would have been in effect when this prophecy was given, were 360-day calendars. How many, how many days? 360 days. All right? So, remember, we have a mathematical prophecy of 69 weeks. So, there is a duration. It's 69 weeks from... The command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, this decree of Artaxerxes, and the coming of Messiah the Prince. All right? That's 69 weeks. So now we can just do our math. So we know when the 69 weeks began. It began with what? Somebody tell me. The decree of Artaxerxes. Everybody say this. The decree of Artaxerxes. That's when it started. All right? So when did the the 69 weeks start? The decree of Artaxerxes. We have that specifically outlined in Scripture. Okay? When did it end? How do we know the fulfillment of this? Well, it's very simple. When did Jesus allow the people to worship him as a king? When did he allow that to happen? Now, how many of you know he is the king? But he didn't allow the worship of a king. He came as a baby. He came in a, in a humble stall. He was a, he was a carpenter. Here's some examples of his refusal to be called a king. Look with me at Luke chapter 8. Isn't this fun? Tracking this down. This is so cool. You aren't having nearly as good a time as I am. Luke chapter 8, look at verse 54. So Jesus, and he put them all out and took her by the hand and called saying, made rise. Okay, he's, rise, he's raising this girl from the dead. And her spirit came again and she arose straightway and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Why? He didn't want them to know that he was the king yet. And he did this often. Don't tell no man what you've done. Remember, he told the lepers, don't tell anyone what I've done. All right. Look with me at John chapter 6. We've studied this one before. Remember when the disciples are out on the lake and the storm comes up and they say, Master, careth not that we perish. Jesus had sent them out for a reason. And that reason is John 6 and verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived, remember this was just right after the miracle of the loaves and fishes, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, the disciples went down unto the sea. And this is when they are struggling. And he goes walking on the water to them. But what was he doing? Why did he leave into the mountain? Because it wasn't his time yet to be made a king. Are you following me on this? Why did he do this? Look at John chapter 2 and verse 4. 
John 2. So this is his mother is coming to him about making the turning the water into wine. If it was me, I would have turned water into coffee. I think that'd be my miracle. Woman. Notice he didn't say blessed mother. Mother of God. No. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Very interesting. And he would say that often. Mine hour is not yet come. They would come and try and take him by force and he would just move on. He would move on. Why? Because Jesus had a very specific timetable. So when did he allow himself to be worshipped as king? When did it change at Jesus' triumphal entry? Now, there are several places we could go to Matthew 21, but let's go to Luke 19 and look at this account of Christ's triumphal entry. And I want you to notice a couple of things that are very interesting. So remember, mine hour is not yet come. Mine hour, now, isn't that a specific thing, mine hour? Right? Very specific. So in chapter 19 and verse 28 of the book of Luke, and when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethany, I'm sorry, to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go ye into the village over against you in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied whereupon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. All right. So he's telling them, go now. And when you get there at this, there will be, notice Jesus starts caring for every detail and starts telling people when to do things. And if verse 31, and if any man ask you, why, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. So they go and do it, and then look at verse 35, and they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon, and as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. Now, it's interesting, whenever we might miss something in the Scriptures, a prophetic event about the Messiah, the Pharisees come to our rescue. Okay, so now look at what happens. Verse... 37, and when he was come nigh, even now unto the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do you understand that they believe this is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9? How many of you see that? That's what's happening here. All right, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out because he is God. He's the king. He is the Messiah, the prince. So now we understand the terminus. We understand when did this 69 weeks end. It's a mathematical prophecy. So from the command to rebuild Jerusalem, which began with the decree of Artaxerxes, 69 weeks later, we have Messiah the Prince. Everybody got your hand out? All right. 
We have the exact date of the decree of Artaxerxes because it's listed for us in Scripture. The exact date is March 14th, 445 B.C. That's the date of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And Nehemiah went immediately. He traveled overnight, got there immediately, and immediately began building the the walls in the city. So the date is March 14th, 445 B.C. Interestingly, we also know the exact date of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ because we know when the Passover was on the 14th of Nisan. So we know the exact date, the exact calendar date is April 6, 32 A.D. of Jesus Christ's triumphal entry. Now, you don't find this kind of specificity in the Book of Mormon or in any of the other religious books. Only the Bible gives you exact prophecies, specific dated prophecies that you can check out. All right? So April 6, 32 A.D. is the triumphal entry. So let's start breaking this down a little bit. So 69 times 7 times 360. Where do we get the 69 times 7? Tonight we'll look at it, but Daniel is dealing, when we think of a week, we think of seven days. The Bible uses a week in different ways, and here it's dealing with weeks of years. Weeks of years. We know that because the Bible says in the middle of the week is when the abomination of desolation takes place. And the Bible makes it very clear in the book of Matthew that that's a week of years. It's seven years. The Bible calls it a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. A time, one year, times, two years, and half a time, a half year. Three and a half years. Abomination of desolation takes place. Three and a half more years of great tribulation, Jesus says. So when you put all that together, you have weeks of years. So how many days are in a week? Seven. 69 times seven times 360. All right. What are the 360? 360 days in a year. So 69 weeks of years times 360 is 173,880 days. 173,000 880 days. That is 69 times 7 years times 360 days gives us a total of 173,880 days. So, let's break this down a little bit. Now, if you turn over your, your handout, I hope you've got on the back. You can see I've got these blanks for you. So, the number of days from 445 B.C. to 32 A.D., is 173,740 days. So from 445 B.C., that's the decree of Artaxerxes, to 32 A.D., the triumphal entry is 173,740 days. But you can't, it doesn't work that simply. You just can't take the number of days because there are some issues that come up. You also have the time period from March 14th to April 6th, that's 24 days. Twenty-four days, and you can't forget about the leap years. There, if you add the leap years that take place in that amount of time, that's 116 more days. All right. So if you take the total days from 445 BC to 32 AD, it's 173,740. Then from March 14th to April 6th, that's 24 days. 
And then the leap years are 116 days. When you add that all together, it's 173,880 days. Now, open your Bibles with me to Luke 19 and Psalm 118. Sir Robert Anderson was the head of Scotland Yard. He was brought in during the Jack the Ripper case. And he's the one who figured this out and did this math. Sir Robert Anderson, he wrote a book called The Coming Prince, where he breaks all this down. But if you look at Psalm 118 and look at verse 22. Psalm 118 and verse 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is, what are the next two words? Everyone, what are the next two words? The day which the Lord hath made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. It's the day that they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. It's the day. Look at Luke chapter 19. So when you get Luke 19, look up at the screen. I want you to, I got a question for you. What was Gabriel's margin of error? Exactly zero. He gave them a specific day, a specific day that the Messiah, the Prince, would come. The day that he would finally be recognized as king. Jesus arranged it all. So back to Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Do you see that? Jesus, they wanted him to be their king, but he wasn't, they were not looking for a spiritual leader. They were looking for a military conqueror. They thought he was going to lift the burden of Rome off of them. That's all they wanted. Jesus expected them to know it, and he held them accountable for not knowing. I want you to notice something that he says at the end of verse 42. But now they are hid from thine eyes. They are hid from thine eyes. Do you see that? That's why in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 Paul says, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant that blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. That blindness was proclaimed right here because they missed their day. Look at verse 43. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round 
and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Why? Because thou knewest not, remember he said, mine hour is not yet come, the time of thy visitation. You say, wait a minute, this was his triumphal entry. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a day later, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. And he held them accountable for not knowing. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. I started with you at verse 2 for a reason. Showing how Daniel, in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to the Jeremiah the prophet. How did Daniel know the time was up? Because he believed and took seriously every word and every number that God had given to Jeremiah. Do you all see that? And then he, he holds the nation of Israel. Jesus holds the nation of Israel accountable for not doing what Daniel, his beloved, had done. God is very serious about his word. This is the power of biblical prophecy. We need to understand that Jesus in his prediction where he says they're going to compass you about, they're going to tear down your city, they're going to tear down the temple, not one stone will be left on the other. In AD 70, when Vespasian, the general, had begun a siege of Jerusalem, Nero died and Otho became king and he couldn't, emperor, and he couldn't handle it. And then Alba and then... Others, there are three emperors in a very short period of time. The last one died. And Vespasian gets called back to become the next emperor of Rome. His son Titus ended up taking over the siege. And Titus came in and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem. And he wanted to preserve the temple because he wanted the gold. But one of his soldiers accidentally set a fire in the temple... And the gold melted and ran through the whole building. So what did Titus have them do? Take the temple apart stone by stone to get the gold. All the people, millions of people died during the siege. Why did that happen? Listen, don't miss this. Because they did not take God's word seriously. That's why it happened. Everything God said about Israel has happened. Everything God says about the future of Israel will happen. And everything God says about you and me is true. Amen? When the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that mean? That if you'll call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Whatever God says about you, it is true. Can, isn't it amazing? That God predicted a specific day when Jesus Christ would make his triumphal entry. And that's the exact day in history that it happened. It's unbelievable. Everyone ought to bow before our Lord Jesus Christ and before his amazing scripture and say, let God be true and every man a liar. Amen. Man, there are some more specific prophecies that God gives that we're going to be looking at. 
But the most important thing is that we submit to God's will for us. And the Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish, that all should come to, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? God wants us all to have joy and peace in believing. That's what the Bible says. Joy and peace in believing. That's what God has for you. You know, all of us, we can have such turmoil in our lives. We get that turmoil in our lives and we think that we know better than God. If we'll just submit to God's plan and God's purposes for our lives as revealed in the scripture, then he will give us what he has promised, joy and peace in believing. And I wonder how many of us would say, you know what, I'm walking my own way. And this God's word is so powerful and I take it for granted. Some days I don't even read it. I need to acknowledge the priority of God's word in my life and the priority of God's purposes for my life in response to the power of prophecy. Amen? The other thing, what did Daniel do when he realized the numbers were coming up? He started praying. Do you know what the Bible says? That Jesus, at, the to- at a time in which you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Jesus could return just like that. So what are we supposed to be doing? Praying for it. We need to live our lives in anticipation of the imminent, that means at any moment, return of Jesus Christ. How many of you would say, you know what? I don't think about Christ's return enough. How many of you would say that? See, we live our lives differently when we realize that this world's not our home, that we have here no continuing city, but we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. It should change us. The study of prophecy is not just to fill our heads. It's to fill our hearts with expectation of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says it this way in Titus, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who shall redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He's coming back. He's coming back. Amen? He is coming back. Man, when I was a kid, there's prophecy preaching all the time. Remember the late great planet Earth? I remember that. There's a, all of that. And because God hasn't returned in the last 30 years, does that mean he's not coming soon? No. No. The Bible says the day of our salvation is nearer than it was before. He's coming back. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to preach it. The Lord, this morning especially, thank you for the amazing, specific, numeric mathematical prophecy that you have already fulfilled.